Sentire Media. Hello you, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 144, A Sickly Father, A Magnificent Mother, and Balls, 1464 to 1468. Just a quick warning, in this episode we will be talking about intimate male body parts. Nothing scandalous or R-rated, but still, be warned. It sometimes happens that a less famous figure can get squashed and pushed out of the spotlight by a more prominent predecessor and successor. You fans of English history may think of Edward II squashed between the Hammer of the Scots and Edward III. Such is the fate of the eldest son of Cosimo de' Medici, Piero. In Italy, the poor guy is mostly remembered for being sick. Indeed, he is known as Piero il Gottoso, Piero of the Gout, a rather unfortunate moniker at best. Gout, a form of inflammatory arthritis, can be very painful, making it impossible for the sufferer to move. Despite being the eldest son, his weak disposition meant that his brother Giovanni was supposed to inherit the control of Florence, the shadow government of the Medici. But Giovanni died a year before his father, and that meant it was Piero's turn. Granted, Cosimo immediately started to train a very young grandson, Lorenzo, for rule, but Piero did get some time in, and in that short time, he did a pretty decent job. You can actually see a tangible sign of his worth, and it has something to do with balls, specifically the Medici and their balls. If you look at the Medici coat of arms, you will see a golden shield with six balls, which were originally considered to be coins, but the Florentines, with their sense of humor, well conserved to this day, prefer to call them balls. The five balls below are red, but the top one is blue, with three French fleurs de lille, gigli in Italian or lilies in English. The Medici got permission from the King of France himself, Louis XI, to put lilies on one of their balls, because the king was so impressed with Piero who had been there on a diplomatic mission when Cosimo was still alive. In other words, the King of France gave Piero a blue ball on which he was allowed to put lilies. The lily is actually the symbol of Florence to this day, but this was used way before the Medici came to power and may go all the way back to the origins of the city, Florentia, and the veneration of the goddess Flora. The Florence football team, Fiorentina, also have the lily on their symbol, along with a lovely purple uniform. Anyway, I digress. What a surprise, I hear you say. We said that Grandpa Cosimo had already started to train little Lorenzo, who at the time of the founder's death was only 14. But already at 16, he started to go on diplomatic and business trips for the family, 
such as when, in 1466, Piero sent him to Rome to oversee the contract for the Medici control of the Tolfa alum mines. All of this to say that Piero had help, especially from his wife, Lucrezia Tornabuoni, from an important Florentine family. Both parents were very cultured and imparted a thorough education to their children, who included three girls, Maria, Bianca, Nannina, two boys, Lorenzo and Giuliano, and an extra illegitimate, just for good luck, Giovanni. Illegitimate son of Piero, that is. So these children received a great education, but Lucrezia herself was also a well-known poet, something which rubbed off on Lorenzo. She was known to have a great sense of humour, to be very intelligent and wise, as well as having a keen mind for business. If there was any magnificence to be handed down to their five children, it was more likely to come from Lucrezia. So at the age of 48, Piero started to take a crack at running the Republic of Florence with the help of his magnificent wife and soon-to-be magnificent son. Externally, 1466 was a big year in northern Italy due to the death of the Duke of Milan, Francesco Sforza, who was succeeded by his son Galeazzo Maria. Francesco had been a staunch ally of Florence. Could the same be said now for his less dependable son? In fact, the trouble came from home. Under Cosimo, things in Florence had been quiet now for over 30 years. But that did not mean that everyone loved the Medici. Now, with the head of the family often confined to his bed and a very green air, the opportunity for any opposition was once again ripe. Luckily for the Medici, the leader of the next conspiracy against them, Luca Pitti, was not very good at conspiring. He started messing around in 1465, but didn't actually get anything done until the following year. He was joined by other prominent Florentines, including a long-term advisor and friend to Cosimo, Dioti Salvi Neroni. His name means, may God save you. We'll see if she did. After running out of legal options to oppose the Medici, the conspirators saw their chance in 1466 when Piero was recovering from a bout of gout in the family home in Careggi, which was then north of Florence and is now a district of the city. The conspirators gathered between Careggi and Florence with the object of moving on Careggi, less secure than the Medici home in Florence to capture Piero. They also managed to involve the Este of Ferrara, also Signori of Reggimiglia and Modena, now headed by Borso d'Este, who sent an army under the command of his brother, Ercole, future father-in-law to a certain Lucrezia Borgia. Piero, ailing as he was, did not waste any time. He had his men take him straight back to Florence and sent for help to a contingent of Milanese troops, which luckily were right near the border. Having heard he was on the move, the conspirators set an ambush for him, but the Medici spies got wind of it, and this is one of the early moments in which Lorenzo got an opportunity to show his mettle. He sent word to his father, telling him to take a different route into Florence and went ahead to keep the conspirators occupied, while Piero made it safely back to Palazzo Medici. Another version is that Lorenzo saw the roadblock and was not recognised. The end result, in any case, 
was that they managed to get back to Florence safely. Once back in Florence, the Medici holed up in their palace, surrounded themselves with supporters, and armed themselves to the teeth, purchasing as many weapons in the city as they could, also so the opposition couldn't. The Este army, having heard that the conspiracy had failed, quickly turned around and headed home. Florence became a potential battlefield as tensions rose. The Arno River was the line drawn in the sand between Palazzo Medici on one side and Palazzo Pitti on the other. Obviously, at this time, Palazzo Pitti didn't belong to the Medici. In the end, it was some good old-fashioned wheeling and dealing that managed to defuse the situation. Piero managed to reach an agreement with Luca Pitti, and a deal was struck. With the leader of the opposition out of the way, resistance trickled away, and many came asking for forgiveness. The pro-Medici Signoria then called an assembly, which set up an investigation. Piero was quite forgiving in the end. Only those who it was too dangerous not to punish were banished from Florence. Among these was the old ally of Cosimo de' Medici, Diotti Salvi Neroni, who was not at all pleased. He and the other anti-Medici called in the help of a mercenary captain, who at the time was also the head of the Venetian army, Bartolomeo Colleoni. He is definitely worth a bit of our time. We could actually do several episodes on him, as we did for the mercenary Braccio da Montone, but we said he would act as the example for the many others that were hanging around Italy in the 14th and 15th century. Bartolomeo could be an idea for a Patreon episode or series. Incidentally, Bartolomeo Colleoni was involved in the War of L'Aquila in which Braccio da Montone was killed in 1424. So, by the time we get to him in 1467, he was quite a way into his career. He was born into a family of minor nobility in Solza, near the city of Bergamo, in northern Italy, and distinguished himself very early as an able soldier, especially in mountain warfare. His dream was to be nominated the commander of the army of the Republic of Venice, which he eventually was late in life after being passed over and a lot of frustration. He started out in the service of Venice, then went over to the Visconti of Milan before coming back and ending his days in the service of Venice. As is the case with many mercenary captains, he also hoped to set up his own fiefdom, and although he was awarded control of many castles and lands, he was never able to set up a dynasty. This is also because, try as they might, he and his wife could not have a boy. Instead, they were lucky enough to have eight girls. In a rather touching moment in his life, which is one of the reasons it would make a good film or miniseries, his favourite beloved daughter, Medea, died at the age of only 14, after her father had given up all his offices and engagements to be with her. Bartolomeo was not all fighty-fighty, stabby-stabby, shooty-shooty, though. He was something of a philanthropist, using some of the great wealth he managed to accumulate over his life to actually set up a foundation, which, among other things, helped illegitimate young girls find a legitimate marriage. It also dealt with bringing good irrigation systems to farming lands, improving the waterways in general, and helping the poor. 
His organization still exists to this day, as well as others that bear his name. Even if all of this is definitely good reason to spend more time on him than just a passing mention for the war against Florence, there is one main reason I had to tell you about him. By now, my dear listener, you have come to know me well, including my very childish humour. So, imagine my utter delight after discussing the Medici Bulls in reaching a point in which I could talk to you about a man whose very surname, Corleone, comes from a slightly vulgar Italian word for bulls. And I don't mean footballs or baseballs. I actually mean testicles. As if that wasn't wonderful enough, the man's coat of arms, which he bore with great pride, has a field of French fleur de lille at the top, for which he got permission thanks for his help to the Anjou, and underneath three pairs of testicles. The top two red on a white field, and the bottom one white on a red field. Three pairs, possibly alluding to the fact that Bartolomeo had had polyorchidism, an extra-family jewel, although that is more likely to be a legend as it is in extremely rare condition. Long and highly entertaining digression aside, by 1467, Bartolomeo had not much had of a chance to have a good fight ever since the wishy-washy piece of Lodi and Italic League business in the 1450s. So when Diotti Salvi Neroni and the other Florentine exiles came to him to overthrow the Medici and get them back in Florence, he jumped at the chance. Venice gave the okay, and so the game was afoot. Piero de' Medici, however, not only had the support of Milan, but also managed to bring Naples in on his side. So Bartolomeo Colleoni found himself facing quite a formidable army, although they were very evenly matched and he was a man with bulls. The peak of this confrontation came at the Battle of Riccardina or Molinella. This because historians still argue over where exactly the battle took place. The battle was a substantial draw, but since the end result was that Corleone and the Florentine exiles didn't overthrow the Medici and get back into Florence, you can chalk it up to a Medici victory. The battle was particularly bloody due to the use by Corleone of artillery, which was considered a no-no at the time, and unchivalrous and all-out nasty and not fair. You could say that he was an early adopter of the technology, which would start to take hold in Italy more after the intervention of Charles VIII of France, and would see such protagonists as Alphonse d'Este and Cesare Borgia, respectively husband and brother of Lucrezia Borgia. The peace treaty the following year saw Florence get the strategic castles of Sarzana and Sarzanello, which allowed them to control passage north and northwest. Bartolomeo Colleoni picked up malaria during the period of the battle and it would eventually see him off in 1475 at the ripe old age of 80, which was not too bad at all, considering also that he died with a lot of land and riches. He would be one of the last of his generation of mercenary captains, the Capitani di Ventura, whose sword was their livelihood. Meanwhile, the Medici had survived another challenge to their authority, and they were sitting pretty. 
Lorenzo had come of age, and now it was time for him to find a good wife to continue the dynasty. The young man's heart, however, already had a mistress. Grazie mille per l'ascolto. Thank you very much for listening. And thanks in particular to my wonderful Patreon supporters, starting with the first half of the Margherita Hack and Galileo Galilei level. And that is Alison H, Amanda D, Anthony G, Brian J, Carrie W, C Lane, Cindy M, David P, Dean V, Dominique T, Emily B, Federica R, Francisco A, Gabriel S, Greg, Gunnar, Ignazio, Il Valentino, Jacob L, Jane J, Jeff M, Jeff S, Jeffrey W, Jesse and Shari, John W, and Juan Diego. And of course, the super tippy top group, Maria Montessori and Dante Ligieri level, Paolo, Lisa K, Andrew M, Peter W, Kevin O, David L, Rinat, David C, Oak, JW, Sen, and David A. Like them, if you want, you can become a Patreon supporter and have access to ad-free episodes and extra content. You can do so by going to our website, ahistoryofitaly.com, and clicking through to the support page or going directly to patreon.com forward slash ahistoryofitaly. If you want to get in touch, the email is hello at ahistoryofitaly.com, or you can do so on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.